Welcome to the podcast of the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I'm Bob Akashrafi. Today is November 8, 2021, and I'm speaking with Douglas O'Regan, who is a historian of technology, industry, and national security. He received his PhD from the University of California at Berkeley, and he's the author of Taking Nazi Technology, Allied Exploitation of German Science After the Second World War. Thank you for joining us, Doug. Thanks for having me. Your book is about the efforts of many countries, most especially the U.S., U.K., France, and the Soviet Union, to benefit from German science and technology after World War II. What was novel or new about these efforts? What were the motivations and expectations behind these efforts? This is, in a lot of ways, the story of the, at least at the time, the largest scale effort at technology transfer in world history. To give a little context, going into the Second World War, uh, Germany had a long-standing reputation for excellence in science and technology. We still have something like that reputation uh, alive today. You know, German engineering, people still talk about as this standard of excellence. Cars, watches, whatever whatever you might think about, still, still has that reputation to some degree today. And it was much, much stronger in the early 20th century because German science had been so strong internationally. If you were an American or to some degree even a British student of science, say wanted to get a PhD, and you really wanted to be at the top of the game, you would very strongly consider going to a German university and studying under a German expert in the same way that today, people from all over the world come to MIT or Stanford or American universities uh, if they really want to be at the top of their field in lots and lots of areas. And so coming into the war, people really thought of Germany as a great scientific establishment. We just had all these German Jewish immigrants fleeing Nazi persecution, but among them were some of the greatest scientists in the world. Albert Einstein is an obvious example, but a number of others as well fled from Nazi Germany. And in a way, even though in retrospect, we can look back and say a lot of the greatest talent of German science left because of Nazi persecution, it also sort of advertised German ability. So all that's to say that going into the war, people really thought highly of German science and technology. And so throughout the war, People were terrified. What's the next next thing to come out of German science that's going to impact the war? You saw some German weapons that had never been seen before. The greatest example of this is the V-2 self-propelled missile, the first sort of self-propelled rocket, uh, sort of like today you'd have the Scud missiles or these other sort of rockets that launch. The, the eventual ultimate version of this is the ICBM, the uh, nuclear weapons that can launch from America and hit Russia or you know vice versa. But that technology was brand new. It was terrifying. It went, these missiles went faster than sound. And so you could be in London, not hear anything because these are flying, again, faster than sound, and then bam, explosions. Uh, earlier versions were sometimes even scarier because they were slower than sound and so you could hear the whistling coming. That's its own problem. But so the point is that people were really terrified of what's the next German wonder weapon that's going to come out. The Americans, the British, they're working on the Manhattan Project. They're working on their own scientific wonder weapon the likes of which had never been seen before. And so people were terrified, what was Germany going to do next? And so very naturally, the Americans, the British, the French, the Soviets, all wanted to investigate German science and technology. And that makes a lot of sense from a military perspective. You want to get everything you can for the war. And that was the initial goal. But this very quickly spread beyond just military technologies. So as I said, Germany's reputation for science technology went back a long ways and it was not just limited to military applications. And very quickly, the idea sprang up in the heads of American businessmen, 
American leaders in the bureaucracy, in the military, also British minds, French minds, all over the world, people thinking, maybe what we want to learn about German technology isn't just the military side. We want to learn how do they make their watches so well? How do they make synthetic gasoline out of the materials they had available? How do they make all of these other kinds of technological industrial advances that Germany was known for at the time? And so throughout these countries, people started planning for once we take over Germany, once we beat Germany, once we start invading, how can we send in teams to extract as much as we possibly can for our own industrial uses? So how did they go about trying to extract this knowledge? Can you contrast for us the approaches of the U.S. and U.K. on the one hand and the French on the other? Yeah, and to some degree, it's it's sort of a spectrum within these countries, but also between these countries. So I'm I'm a little bit being general here. You know, obviously, this is a very complicated story if you get down into the weeds. Within the United States alone, there were something like 20 or 30 different agencies who were interested in taking German technology in various forms, whether it's a very specific technical oil mission sent over by the oil industry to find out about synthetic gasoline or groups sent over from precision watchmaking or from machine tools or from agriculture sent over. So lots of different people are doing this. But I would say, generally speaking, the planning of the Americans and the Brits was to send over teams from industry who would travel through Germany right behind the front lines, sometimes even ahead of the front lines, to capture targets of scientific or technical value. These could be a research establishment. These could be the industrial production facilities for chemical goods. Uh, These could be anything that you might think of that there would be technical data or industrial or scientific knowledge that would be important, race ahead and capture these to prevent the Germans from destroying them as they retreated and to prevent the allied forces from looting and destroying them indiscriminately as they advanced. And then they would set these industrial teams in place. They would take the breakthrough technologies of the day, which were microfilm, microphotography, take pictures of these documents, interview anyone they wanted to, write up these reports, and the report would tell everyone back home in, let's say, the, the fishery industry, what was German fishing technology like at the time? How were they accomplishing what they were doing? What could Americans learn from this uh, or, or any other technology you could think about? These were really widespread. Aircraft production, uh, machine tools, really anything you could think about. They, they wanted to find out what was going on in Germany. And so they would send these reports back. These reports would be distributed everyone wins. You get these reports spread out. Germany pays a little bit of what were called intellectual reparations for World War II, and and everybody comes out ahead. That's the initial planning for the American and to a large degree the British perspective. I think in a minute we'll get to how that sort of fell apart, but I'll say the French, when they had a chance at this a little bit later on, came at it from a different perspective. They, generally speaking, didn't think that that was going to be an effective tactic. They were primarily worried about Germany rebuilding itself and rebuilding its military capacity. So they were really worried about what was Germany going to be doing. So they had two very closely connected objectives. One, keep an eye on what the Germans are doing, but two, also take anything they can back for their own use. And they believed that the only way they were going to be able to accomplish that was by inserting French students into German facilities to become trained by the Germans themselves. The French students would then sort of gather all of this imbued cultural technology, all the small things they couldn't have figured out uh, from written reports, and then they would bring the French people back to work in France 
Or in some cases, they would pick up the entire German lab from Germany, move it into France, and plop it down. But the French really felt that they weren't going to be able to get anything out of these reports. They needed to get the entire research establishment, the people, the connections, lifted up and brought back into France because they felt that a scientist pulled out of his environment, pulled out of the context where he'd been doing the research, was rendered sterile um, in, their in their terminology, that you really had to have this whole context around them. So very different approaches, but that also means that the French weren't able to share what they were doing. You know, if you're taking a lab out of Germany and plopping it into France, you can't share that with the British or the American allies. The Americans or the Brits, they're writing a report. You can share a report with your friends. So there's some diplomatic uh, implications to this as well. It's a very interesting philosophical contrast about science. And as you hinted, you wrote in the book that the expectations of the U.S. and the U.K. were in some ways not met. How were the U.S. and the U.K. disappointed? And what did they learn from that disappointment? So to a large degree, this is, again, the story of people expecting the world from Germany. Everyone went in, or at least an awful lot of people went in, thinking they were going to learn all kinds of things from Germany. They were going to get all of these great industrial technologies. It was going to be just this, this huge value. So many different people wrote in from different industries, different groups within the U.S. and U.K. to their military or governmental establishments who were doing these exploitation programs saying this is going to be great for us. We've got to, we've got to get on board. We've got to find the right people to do it. As they got there, there were sort of two different stories. In the American story, they got there and they kept finding, well, this, this is fine, but you know, what we're doing back in America is you know, at least as advanced, maybe even better given the different technologies and different resources that are available in America. You know, for example, the Germans had some great chemical technologies that were very good at using the very limited resources that the Germans had. For example, they didn't have very much access to oil during World War II because they didn't have access to the Middle East. They didn't have access to other places that produced it. The Americans were not as short on oil as the Germans were, especially after World War II ended. And so it's not really clear that that technology would have been as useful in the context of the United States. And so throughout these investigations, you kept seeing again and again reports back in, in my field, once I got there, once I got on the ground and spoke to them, spoke to the people creating these technologies, these uh, industrial goods in Germany, what the Germans are doing, not that useful, but you're going to find so much value elsewhere. And you see that in industry after industry. And so for the Americans, it's sort of a story of reorienting themselves and thinking about, well, maybe we're actually the leaders when it comes to technology, industrial technology in these fields. Maybe we need to be thinking, not what can we learn from Germany, but what can we share with the world? What partnerships can we make with German firms to sell stuff after the war? What partnerships can we make with companies in other countries to sell stuff after the war? And how can we share our technology to develop a capitalist, America-oriented world to rebuild, to counter what was increasingly seen as a Soviet threat? The British, uh, to be a little, little, little more brief about it, the British felt that they really, really needed export goods. They'd built up a huge debt during the war. They needed export goods so they could pay down that debt, and that was their primary goal. There's a little bit of the case that it was the same as the Americans. They got there, and they didn't get all the expectations that they came in with. The Germans weren't so far advanced as they'd, they'd hoped, but there were some export goods they thought they could learn from still. But the British had the same problem that, that the Americans did, that they wrote the best reports they could. They sent over the people that they, were, they thought were just right. They spent all the time and effort microfilming 
photographing, getting copies of all the documentation they could want, and they just weren't able to capture the technology. When they got back home, these reports just couldn't capture the things people needed to be able to make the technologies work, no matter how well written they were. There were other elements to it that only the people who actually were on the ground in Germany were picking up. The things you wouldn't think to write down in a report, how a factory is organized, how it's oriented, um, what what isn't working is because you have to use this shortcut that some German industrialist was on the factory floor and figured out you have to add this after that. It's not written down in the formula for the chemical uh, setup, but it's just something that all the people in the factory know how to do and showed the British or the American investigators when they came over, but it didn't necessarily make it back into the reports. They weren't capturing what the British and later the Americans talked about as the know-how in these reports, and so the British had to reorient their whole planning to send more people over to Germany and take more and more of what I sort of described earlier as a French approach, that you really needed the people sent into Germany, embedded in German institutes for a longer period of time, in order to learn about these technologies at a useful level. And so increasingly, that was a shift from the, of the British mindset from planning just like the Americans to planning a lot more like the French. How did this spectrum of efforts to transfer knowledge and technology from Germany, how did these efforts shape the post-war world of international science? One of the stories that comes through this entire research that I didn't come into it expecting. I didn't come into this book expecting to write about scientific bibliography or efforts to organize all of human knowledge. But in the 1920s, 1930s, leading into the 1940s and World War II, there have been really ambitious efforts to organize everything about science possible. The idea was we have these brand new, amazing technologies, information technologies, we'd call them today, that are going to let us access any information we want. We have lots and lots of information coming out of Germany, German science and technology, known as the best in the world, all these scientific journals being published internationally in German. We have American journals, we have British journals. Science is growing exponentially throughout the early 20th century, late 19th century. And people keep coming up against this problem that there's just being too much produced to keep up with. If you are a physicist working in 1890, there's a lot you need to follow, but it's primarily German, French, British, maybe some American results. By the 1940s, there's an enormous amount of literature, more and more journals, more and more places you have to follow, more and more people you have to follow. This is a very familiar problem today. A scientist working today can only follow a very narrow focus field if you want to keep up with everything that's going on. That was the problem that was happening to more and more people in the early 20th century. And so people were organizing around, how can we master this? And so different institutions grew up uh, within countries and then internationally trying to organize ways of indexing science so that you could follow everything in your field by following the index of everything published this year within my area. It's a little bit hard for us today to capture, especially anyone who's born more recently than going to a library and having to use a card catalog the, the actual sort of physical difficulty of finding information in a pre-computer age. You couldn't just go and look at what are all of the journal table of contents that came out in your field. You actually had to have the journals in front of you or know someone who had them. Or as increasingly libraries were organizing, these bibliography institutes who would send out the table of contents for these international journals. 
And so this, this problem of exponentially growing science, the difficulty of tracking it leads into the war. And then getting into the war, it's sort of a crisis moment for this. Because now all these American scientists and British scientists are in Germany and industrialists too. And they have the capability now of capturing everything they want from German science. They can go talk to any German scientist who's still on the ground, and they have the power of a military to, behind them to ask questions. They can go make copies of every piece of data they could want, every document. They could go to every research facility. All this information is getting microfilmed and packaged and shipped back according to the great, latest and greatest industrial technology of the day. And what you're finding is information overload. You have these piles of microfilms. If you had printed out the documents, you, they would have gone miles into the sky. Everyone sees the way of capturing all this information. But the key problem is having information in a written down format, even if it's microfilmed, even if today it's in a hard drive, having 600 petabytes of data today doesn't mean you know anything. You have a huge amount of data, but how do you actually access it? How do you access what you need from it? How do you process it and digest it and use it? And that, to some degree, at this scale, was a new problem that these investigations of Germany really forced people to grapple with in a way they hadn't before. And a lot of different attempted solutions came out of it. A lot of um, attempts to use computers, the very earliest sort of computers, to do this indexing and bibliography and grappling with the massive amount of information. And on the other hand, to some degree, efforts to give up on some of the really ambitious, universal, utopian goals of mastering all knowledge that's out there. Some people realizing, okay, you just can't capture all the information that's out there in a usable way. You need to be a little more careful in your goals. And so let's organize around libraries, but focused on a particular science, a particular area, and narrow down our goals. And to some degree, you have people who just still kept the utopian vision, didn't care about the, whether the information was actually useful. They just wanted to produce the information in the first place. And so you just got piles and piles of documents taken from Germany, picked up, put into boxes, shipped to an archive in the Commerce Department, and just sat there unused for decades or forever. I, I don't know if there was a huge solution that came out of this, but it really shaped the way that international science worked in digesting and displaying and indexing and sharing knowledge in the post-war years. The world of intellectual property has, of course, changed a great deal since the end of World War II. But are there lessons or object lessons from your history that might inform our thinking today about the transfer of scientific knowledge and technology? When I came into the book, as I said, I, I didn't think of, I thought of this as a history of the efforts to take German science and technology. And I was going to look at the American, British, French, and Soviet perspectives, see what succeeded, what went differently. These, these countries were in very different places. They had very different needs coming out of the war. And so that was going to be really the basis for it. And as I went in, I kept seeing people talking about the know-how. We're not able to capture the German know-how that we need. No matter how well the report's written, as the British would say, we need to use the American term, the know-how, if we're going to capture what we need from Germany. And I, I kept seeing this word, and it was it was kind of strange that it kept coming up again and again. The idea of technology having more elements than can be written down is not a new one. You know, the medieval guild system was built around training apprentices through hands-on training because you couldn't just teach them otherwise. They had to come and work with a master for a long time in order to get this knowledge. That idea wasn't new. 
But the focus on this thing and having the term, the know-how to talk about it, was something that was kind of new in the 1940s and 1950s. And one of the ways that that developed out of these investigations of Germany was the proliferation of what were called know-how contracts. Businesses in the post-war years, if I wanted to share a technology, let's say I made cribs, and I wanted to manufacture my cribs in Germany and sell them to a German market or to Peru uh, or somewhere else, I might partner with a firm in Germany who already makes cribs, but I need to share with them my technology. One traditional way of doing that is to have a patent sharing agreement. I, I buy access to their patents, they buy access to my patents, and theoretically, the way patents are supposed to work is they're a written down version of a technology. If I license a patent, I should be able to read that patent and use it, and now I have the exclusive right to manufacture that technology, and that's the end of the story. In practice, that's not good enough, as the investigations in Germany really underlined. You need the know-how too. And so starting in the 40s and 50s and getting more and more popular over time, companies instead would have a patent and know-how sharing agreement where you would send people to be embedded in their factory or bring people from their company in to be embedded in your factory for months at a time and really learn about the technology that way at a deeper level. And then you could start sharing the technology by sending the people back and forth who really have had the time to learn and gather all of this know-how that you can't get in a written form. And this was a huge deal in the business world. Know-how agreements became much more popular than patent agreements. Know-how in general became the center of technology licensing in the post-war years. But you don't really see that if you look at research on intellectual property for the most part. If you go talk to experts in intellectual property law today, they'll talk to you about patents, they'll talk to you about trademarks, they'll talk to you about other things, but a very few people will talk to you about what today are called trade secrets, which is very closely related, but almost nobody's going to talk to you about know-how. And I think it's kind of a blind spot because you can count patents. It's really easy to do research on how many patents has a company made and how many patents are being developed this year versus last year and within a particular field. And it's very easily quantifiable. That makes it easy to research. It's easy to see from a research perspective, from a policy perspective, for a National Science Institute to see our research grant produced 100 patents. You can't say it produced 100 units of know-how. That's kind of nonsensical. And so it's kind of fallen into a blind spot. But the business world doesn't care about what researchers can easily research. And so the business world really captured and jumped on this idea of know-how being the core of business technologies. And it just in the background of what we see from the policy perspective became a huge deal in business internationally. This wasn't just because of the investigations in Germany, of course. It was a bigger deal. But I think the experience in Germany of trying so hard to capture the German size and technology, having so many resources to do it, an actual army at your back, the funding of the militaries, and still they weren't capturing this technology. I think that really drove home to people from a wide range of industries that this is how we have to do things going forward. We can't rely on just the written version. We need to really focus on the know-how. Well, it's a fascinating story, and we've only just scratched the surface in this podcast. The book is Taking Nazi Technology, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Thank you, Doug, for sharing your work and your perspectives with us. Thank you. This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. 
You can find more resources for exploring this topic, other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect with our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts and the Rita Allen Foundation.